0: Tonight we're talking about a pretty con- contentious issue, actually, in spiritual life, and that is the role of grace in one sadhana or one spiritual practice. And it does seem like a fact, as it does say in the Bible, that some are called. But it says many are called, few are chosen. But the idea of being chosen, of being the receptor of some kind of grace, the recipient of some kind of special favor from the Lord, is something that hits the board in all different spiritual traditions. Important today that we discuss exactly what that grace is in the context of Kashmir Shaivism. So as you know, Abhinava Gupta and a lot of Kashmir Shaiva masters that came before and after him have a very robust idea about exactly this phenomenon called, phenomena called grace. Like what exactly is it? What do you do to get it if there is something that can indeed be done for it? Who gets grace and who doesn't? And why is it that way? Why do some people get grace and why don't others? You know, like is there some partiality on the part of the divine? And how does that all fit into like a non-dual framework where only one reality exists and you're it? Because you know, the central claim of this tradition is that one alone exists, and all of this is the playful self-exploration of that one innately blissful awareness, which you yourself are, always were, always will be, timelessly are now. So this Shiva, which is vibrating, oscillating with the Swanda. With this, you know, this stirring, this stirring of divine exuberance, manifest as always. So if everything in this world is nothing but Shiva, as indeed is the claim of this tradition, then what do we make of grace? Or who's gracing who, etc.? So that's what we're gonna be talking about today. And in Kashmir Shaivism or in Kaula Trika Tantra, I mean, this is not, this word is not unique to Kashmir Shaivism. As you know, this tradition is far broader than just the 150 years or so, 150 or so years of exegetical writings in Kashmir typically called Kashmir Shaivism. So this word that I'm going to use now, it's typically used a lot in conjunction with Kashmir Shaivism, but it applies across the board to all forms of tantra. Even dualistic Shaiva Siddhanta tantra will use this word. And that is Shakti Pata. Shakti, power, Pata, to fall, the descent of, or the coming down of power. So Shakti Pata, that's the word for grace in this. So with your permission, I'd like to reflect a little bit as to what exactly this Shakti Pata or grace is. that's where we're headed. Now, I want to do a few things. One, I want to discuss, first and foremost, what exactly is grace, how one can go about obtaining it. Secondly, I want to look at a few objections that we found across the board in Indian philosophy against the idea of grace in favor of self-effort. Thirdly, I want to talk a little bit about the role of devotion in grace. So obviously, grace is coming from some theistic absolute, like God, who is a person, as you know, in Kashmir Shaivism, it's not a monistic principle, it's a monistic person. The one reality that exists is self-aware and thereby God in the proper sense of that word. So what about devotion, devotion and grace? Do you do devotion or have devotion and then great grace? And then through grace, do you have more devotion, etc.? There seems to be a very interesting relationship between devotion and grace that's being explored by this tradition, which I hope to discuss a bit with you this evening. And only that, in discussing devotion, we can come to see how this tradition values devotion in comparison with knowledge and with yoga. So, you know, in India, across the board, across all different spiritual traditions, there's this long-standing debate about which of these paths is the best. Well, Shankara will say, Jnana Yoga, the path of philosophy, the path of knowledge is the best. The problem is ignorance. You are ignorant of your true nature. What you are, you have no idea. And what you are not, you happily convince yourself that you are. That's your problem. It's like um, there's the truth in front of you, but you're misapprehending it as something else. So ignorance is the problem. And the solution to ignorance is not action. You can't go out and do a bunch of rituals and hope to dispel illusion the same way you would you know, clap your hands in a dark room and expect to see. That's just not going to happen. I mean, sound is not the opposite of darkness. Light is. Similarly, the opposite of ignorance is knowledge. So according to Shankara, it's knowledge and knowledge alone. It's an insight. It's an intuitive flash of insight about your true nature and about the true nature of the world that ultimately frees you. Karma yoga the yoga and Shankara sense of doing rituals like Vedic rituals and what have you are necessary only to achieve a certain level of mental purity. So if there's impurity in the mind, some form of chitta mala, some kind of mental impurity, the problem is you won't be able to meditate. You won't have that like stillness and clarity of mind to be able to sit down and properly meditate. If you try, then what's going to happen is within five minutes, you're going to become incredibly restless or alternatively, incredibly sleepy or both of those in short order. <laughs> So most of us, when we sit down to meditate, our problem is that we just can't, or we wrestle and wrestle against our mind. We're exhausted by the end of it, uh, partly because the mind is not yet made pure. There's not yet that level of chitta shuti, mental purity required for effective meditation. So Sh- Shankara is going to say something like, you do Vedic rituals. You do, you know, in his sense, Vedic rituals, but in our sense, like any kind of activity in the world in a selfless spirit. And then as a result, you get what is called mental equanimity this chitta shuddhi this mental purity and with that you can meditate so then the next thing is the path of meditation and then through the path of meditation and bhakti can be seen as the same thing and there's a way to meditate that's devotional and you you can you can distinguish them meditation and devotion but both of them are preparatory disciplines for for the, the real discipline which shankara is going to say is philosophy the path of inquiry Okay, so Shankara privileges knowledge over devotion and um, work or devotion and service. Ramanuja, now Ramanuja, as you know, um, coming after Shankara disputes this. He flips the ladder. You know, he says, oh, Sri Shankara, you see, you've got a ladder. The lowest rung is karma. Then you have bhakti, then you have raja, then you have jnana, right? But the thing is, a ladder can be flipped (laughs) and it will work just as well. So according to Ramanuja, bhakti is the highest. It's not karma, it's not jnana. You do karma and jnana as preparations, actually, for bhakti. So Ramana just seems to be turning the tables on Shankara, And then Patanjali will say, Ah, enough of your bhakti. Oh, enough of your jnana. There's a there's a place for that. But better than these two is Raja Yoga, the path of concentration, the path of meditation. So like this, there's a lot of debate, a lot of back and forth as to which of these paths is really the best. As you know, Paramahansa Sri Ramakrishna very beautifully resolves this problem by saying, Well, there are different people with different predispositions, different proclivities, different spiritual appetites. There's no real debate about which path is better than which path. The path that's better will naturally just be the path that fits you. But just because it's your path doesn't mean it has to be everyone else's too. So what Ramakrishna Vivekananda do is they take all the paths of yoga and they put them on an equal playing field. and They say all of these are each uh, sufficient unto themselves for taking you all the way to the fullest consummation of spiritual life. It's not like one prepares you for the other. All of them are equally powerful and any one of them is sufficient for full liberation. And you can combine them, says Vivekananda and Ramakrishna. So we got we got a beautiful solution. Now, the question then becomes, well, what does Kashmir Shaivism or what does Kaulatrika make of this debate? Where does Kaulatrika stand on this issue of dhyana or karma or bhakti? So in talking about Shaktipata, naturally the conversation will take us into the realm of devotion. We'll talk a little bit about this tradition's views on that topic, devotion. And it's exciting because it's very much like Sri Ramakrishna's position, that devotion is the culmination of one's spiritual life. It's actually a post-gyana state. It's a very interesting thing that once you recognize that only Divine Mother exists and all of this is her play, and once you recognize that you are none other than that one absolute playing, you typically live the rest of your life as a super bhakta, as a super devotee of the Lord, uh, which you now are able to see in everyone and everything, both animate and inanimate and also in yourself. So every moment is like coming face to face with the divine. So every moment warrants rapture, warrants worship, warrants ecstasy. This is actually called Pratyaksha Advaita, which is a term coined by Abhinava Gupta's father, Nidhissingha Gupta. Uh, Pratyaksha means direct perception, Advaita means non-duality. So in this tradition, the ultimate consummation of spiritual life is direct, immediate perception of the non-dual reality, everywhere, everywhere. And necessarily then, the expression of this in your own life as a body-mind will be bhakti. That's going to be exciting to talk about. And then the fourth thing I want to talk about, if we have time today, is this debate about direct path or progressive path. As you know, there are some traditions that say you are not yet whole, you're not yet perfect, you're not yet liberated. Typically, you were in the past and now something has happened, like you ate a fruit in some garden and you've fallen, or something happened to cause you to lose your inherent purity. And so as a result, you must now practice some level of spiritual effort is required in order to get back that pristine perfection that was lost. You know, so there's this, this emphasis on practice, on reformation, on um, transformation of the body and the mind. Now, contrarily, as you know, there are other spiritual traditions that say, no, that's, that's ridiculous. You are already pure. You always have been, always will be. The problem is not that you are broke in need of fixing. It's not that you are deficient in need of growing. The problem is that you haven't recognized and reclaimed your inherent purity, which is even now the case. So practice, if done under the assumption that it gives you something, will only reify this illusion that you find yourself trapped in. So if you think that you're not pure, and if you're practicing to get pure, then that practice is actually counterproductive. Because the more you practice, the more you confirm to yourself that you're the kind of being who needs to practice and not already free. So the the claim by these non-dual schools is that The practice is only to get you to the point where you don't need practice anymore. The real practice is a practice of recognizing what is already true in each and every moment. So there's less of an effort on reformation and more of an effort on recognition. So this tension, reformation or recognition. Now both sides have their merit and both sides have their drawbacks. You know, the drawback of the direct path is you can easily see for yourself in all of these workshops where direct path teachers are telling their students that you don't need to practice, you're already enlightened it's typically only the teacher that's enjoying the benefits of that enlightenment. Because what the teacher doesn't tell you is that behind their non-dual insight that you don't need to practice is years and years and years or lifetimes of practice. You know, so typically someone will be meditating for years and years and years, and then they'll have this insight that they were always pure. And then immediately the book comes out, they hit the lecture circuit and they delude the whole world by telling them that you don't need to practice, you're already perfect. That's true. The danger of this is that it's actually true. And truth calls out to truth. So the truth in you, which you always are, recognizes the truth of that statement that you are always pure, right? And hearing this, you might then conclude that given that the truth is always the case, I don't have to practice. And then that's a bit like having uh, millions of dollars in the bank. You know about it because the workshop uh, conductor told you, but you don't know how to withdraw that money or spend it. In other words, you don't know how to make manifest your innate divinity. You don't know how to live according to your insight. You don't know how to be Brahman. You still suffer Now there's a buying here. Like if I practice, then I'm giving into the illusion that I need practice. But if I don't practice, then I'm not able to enjoy the truth. So which is it? So there's this big debate between progressive path and um, direct path. So what I think Kashmir Shaivism does uniquely is it gives you the best of both and mitigates against the drawbacks of both. So it reaffirms your innate divinity as Shiva. That's always the case. However, it um, stresses that Shiva is not this passive quiescent monistic principle but is rather a dynamic exuberant creative playful theistic absolute which enjoys and delights in the game of being a trapped person of being a spiritual seeker of being a liberated person etc so you can live the life of an intense sadhaka you know you can you can really practice with a lot of intensity you can put your back into it and do increasing quantities of japa every day. And you could do your puja and you can practice your brahmacharya and struggle against your tendencies. And you could do all of that, but all of it is softened. All of it is ennobled. All of it is enlivened with this sense of I'm already free. And all of this is just part of the game of being free. So notice how the goal is to harmonize both these things, progressive part and direct part like that. So I hope that we'll have some time towards the end of the lecture to say a few things about that. Okay, that's where we're headed. So let's start at the beginning if there even is such a thing, with this question about grace. Oh, I should tell you a story about grace. Now, um, Tuesday nights, I'll have a little... Oh, you know what? Anna is here. Good. So how about we start the lecture with that? Because today we're talking about grace. Um, This is actually a very good lecture to have this prayer. So I'm I'm just now seeing Anna. So I would have had you come and pray a little earlier. Forgive me, Anna. So Anna, if you don't mind, I'd like to invite you to share your prayer. Anna's got a beautiful prayer for us. And I think we'll start with that prayer.
1: Thanks, Nish. Um, yeah, I was sorry to be a little bit later today, so I hoped that um, I could skip it, maybe. <laughs> but I just came from a beautiful walk, and the full moon is gorgeous. And I just did a Temazcal yesterday, so I'm really in the mood for um, grace right now. So let me start. This is a translation from uh, a prayer to the mother god, the Goddess mother or the mother goddess. Um and I'll I'll be reading it in Spanish. So here we go. Ay Madre, se bendita y concede mi amor por tus pies raíz. Ay Madre, rezo por discernimiento. I'm sorry, I'm reading it from a different. And I don't have it all Here, here we go again. Ay madre una vez más, ay madre. Me arrojo a tu compasión. Todo sucede por voluntad tuya. Tomo refugio a tus pies, vacíos. No quiero comodidades del cuerpo, ya que no duran más de dos días, ya que no solo de pan vive el hombre. No añoro nombre ni fama, que son fugaces y solo aumentan mi ansiedad. Y ni siquiera busco los ocho poderes ocultos, son estorbos a la comprensión de Dios. Ay, madre, no quiero ninguno de estos juguetes, cachivaches y pompones. Pido solo que seas bendita y me concedas amor. Un amor libre de egoísmo, un amor no herido por el deseo, ansiado por el devoto, solo por el bien del amor. Y hazme este favor, madre, que nunca sea yo diluida por tu magia hechizante del mundo, que nunca me apegue yo a tu inescrutable magia. Ay madre. No hay nadie en todo este mundo a quien pueda llamar mío más que a ti. Madre, yo no sé cómo adorar. Vivo sin austeridad, no poseo conocimiento ni devoción. Todo pasa por tu gracia, así que por favor concédeme aquello que sea necesario para comprenderte y alcanzarte en esta vida. Para poder sentir tu presencia, toda compasiva, toda penetrante, todo el tiempo. Rezo por discernimiento, rezo por neutralidad. Rezo por devoción, rezo por conocimiento. Ay, madre, sé bendita y concédeme amor por tus pies raíz.
0: Oh, that's that. Can we have a translation, Luciana?
1: Um, You mean like back in English?
0: If you want. Sure.
1: I think I can have it um, like on time, like real time.
0: Yeah, yeah, real time. If you want.
1: I think so, yeah. So that everyone can um, know what we were just praying to. So it's like, oh, mother. I throw myself at your compassion. Everything happens because of your will. I take refuge to your feet, empty. I do not want body commodities since they don't last more than two days. Since not only of bread does the man live. I don't yearn for name or fame, which are flashing and only increase my anxiety. I don't even look for the eight occult powers, their um, obstacles to the comprehension of God. Oh, Mother, I do not want any of this choice, trinkets. I only ask for you to be blessed and concede me some love, a free a love that's free of selfishness, a love that's not hurt for desire. A love that's wished for which from the devout, just for the sake of love. And please do this favor to me, Mother. May I never be diluted by your bewitching magic of the world. May I never be attached to your unscrewable magic? Oh, Mother. There's nobody in this whole world I can call mine, but you, Mother, I don't know how to adore. I live without austerity. I don't have knowledge or devotion. Everything happens because of your grace. So please concede to me that which is necessary to comprehend you and reach to you in this lifetime so I can feel your presence, all compassive, all penetrating, all the time. I pray for discernment. I pray for neutrality. I pray for devotion. I pray for knowledge. Oh, Mother, be blessed and grant me some love for your lotus feet. Om.
0: Wow. <laughs> oh, Thank you so much, sister. Thank you for that. Thank you. That was Today is the perfect lecture think, for a prayer like that. This is Sri Ramakrishna's prayer to the Divine Mother. And just imagine the state of mind a person has to be in to go to God and say, I don't want anything that you have to offer in terms of bodily comforts, in terms of name and fame, in terms of power. I want none of your cities. You keep the cities. I only want pure love for thy lotus feet. Now, what kind of state of mind do you have to be in to pray like that? You know, Sri Ramakrishna, interestingly, he's praying to the Divine Mother in a kind of instructive way. Like, it's almost like he's telling us how to pray or how to approach God. Now, for most of us, this is a ridiculous prayer. For most of us, we can't comprehend what it is to ask for love and love alone and give up all these things like bodily comforts. I mean, for a lot of us, like, as fleeting as the pleasures of the world are, for a lot of us, that's really all we got. You know, you could say, like, yes, the orgasm will last two minutes but it's fucking awesome. You know, you could say, yes, the chocolate cake, it won't ultimately fulfill me, but it's fucking awesome. And, you know, you'll become a foodie, like in LA. You'll just like go from restaurant to restaurant. You'll go down Jonathan Gold's lists and you'll look for more and more delectable treats to eat. And none of it will ever ultimately and permanently satisfy, but it gives you something to live for, being a foodie. Or um, you can go to nightclubs and you can like get people's numbers and take them out on dates and like enjoy a very, very stimulating and thrilling, like romantic life, although it will not be ultimately fulfilling, it offers some degree of fulfillment and satisfaction. You could travel the world and you could see new places and you could visit um, all of the people here in the Sangha and they'll take you on a tour and they'll show you like the Sky Needle in Seattle or, you know, the Trevi Fountain in Rome and you could, you could have your gelato by the fountain as you watch people try to steal the coins and the guards chase them away, like all of this is so nice. It's so thrilling. It's so thrilling to travel. It's thrilling to eat. It's thrilling to make love. It's thrilling to smell flowers. It's, it's thrilling to watch movies. It's thrilling to listen to music. It's thrilling to like engage wholeheartedly in the pleasures of the world. So most of us are driven by this. Like our primary motivation in life is bodily comfort. So we go to work and we try to make a better and better salary so that we can pay for these increasingly refined um, bodily comforts. So most of us want this. And even when we go to God, we say, God, give me a nice house. I could use a little bigger um, living room, please. Next house, give me a balcony. You know, you, you might go to God with these creature comfort sort of demands, And that's only natural because even if you're going to God thus far, all you've known is that. And then maybe sometimes we want something a little maybe more refined than just pleasure. We want name and fame. We want to be recognized for something. We want to be accepted by people and and said, and pe- we want people to say nice things about us. We want praise. So name and fame. And sometimes people go to God and they say, God, please help me with this project. If I do well tomorrow at the recital, I'll be famous. Everyone will love me. So please, God, help me with that. Right. So we want name and fame. We go to God for such things. And finally, you might want power. So you might want spiritual powers, like uh, they're called Synthis. <laughs> the other day, we had a person come to the temple to sing some Kirtan. And at the end of the Kirtan, he said something like, uh, I, one of the monks had said, uh, you're selling Siddhis, c- right? Maharaj? Siddhis? And he said, yes, yes, I'm selling Siddhis. Well, oh, just in case I sell Siddhis. Um, I was like, what? But he meant CDs. I sell CDs. Kirtan CDs. <laughs> he was like, yeah, I sell Siddhis. I'll have them outside by that table. I'm like, well, that's going to be a long line. But you know, Siddhis, like reading people's minds, which typically will give you name and fame, which typically will give you wealth, which typically will give you bodily comfort. So if you want bodily comforts, and you're really smart, you'll go for name and fame instead. Because bodily comforts come with name. If you're really smart, if you want name and fame, you'll go for cities. You'll go for spiritual powers. Because then you'll get also to say, I don't want spiritual powers. I don't want name and fame. And I don't want bodily comforts is a very, very high state. How does a person come to have that state? So I want to start here. Um, I met someone recently. We have pujas here in the house. And people come. And I'm always excited to hear about people's coming to spirituality stories. Because typically they're Shaktipata stories. Remember, Shaktipata is in this tradition, the word for grace. Many are called, few are chosen, that that line in the Bible. This is when one is chosen for spiritual life. And it's typically a powerful experience, an intense experience that gives a person a taste of a joy, hit though unknown to them. And that's like, you know, it sets them on the path. It's, It's like a hound that picks up a scent and spends the rest of its life obsessed with that hunt. You can't really start the hunt without first catching the scent. So if you want your bloodhounds to go and chase your, I don't know, whoever it is that escaped your property. I don't know what is it, how, how the British used to hunt the hares or something like that, or their enemies. You have to give them something to smell. Also, Westerfer, I haven't seen you in 5 million years. I, I feel like it's been forever. I'm just putting Westerfer here because it looks so good today. Hair slicked back. No? <laughs> what a stud. Just want to show you Westerfer because I feel like it's been so long. I said bloodhounds. So there, there's the bloodhound. Oh, there's Chandra also. I haven't seen Chandra in so long. Oh my God. Why is it that I feel like it's been forever since I've seen some you? Anyway, I have to set the bloodhounds on you, I think, to drag you back here. And if you want the hounds to hunt, you know, to go and hunt Westifer, I need to give some article of Westifer's, like, clothing or something. So the, h- the hound can get a scent and then it'll chase him. I'll go to Chicago and get Suresh and Westifer and Anisha and all that. <laughs> so, um, but how do you, you know, how do you get that scent, that smell of God, if you will, the fragrance of spiritual life, something has to happen. Someone has to put the article of clothing under your, and somebody has to put God's laundry in your nose before you know to pursue her. You know, that is typically called shaktipata. So a person came the other day and her story was quite dramatic and I enjoyed hearing it. I thought I'd bring it up just because it's so pertinent to today's lecture and just because it's so recent in my memory. So this woman, she was telling me, she, uh, um, has a lot of bodily pain. She feels a lot of physical suffering. And she feels, I think, quite heavy in the body. And for the whole of her life, she, you know, when when she was young, she had some experience with religion, but never liked it. She saw the Abrahamic religions as a kind of tyrannical power structure used to oppress rather than to liberate. So like many people here in the West, she, you know, has had some kind of religious trauma or some aversion to religion. Now, um, she met some people who are interested in dharma, like Sanatana, dharma, you know, Buddhists and Hindus. And typically it's in the context of like hippie New Agers. So she's been exposed to like a California version of Sanatana Dharma, which is wonderful. Nothing wrong with that. But while she had respect for it, she always felt like it was kind of hippy-dippy and out there. She would never herself say so. And she admitted this. She would always like supportively tell her friends that yes, it's okay and, and, and all that. But she never herself gave any credence to it. So it came about that she fell upon hard times. Her marriage was suffering. Her financial situation was suffering. Her health above all was suffering. And she was kind of at her wits end. So just know, this is a time of suffering. Now, a friend of hers who surrender pitously, she happened to be living with at the time, is very involved in Dharmic communities and has a temple that she goes to regularly. So this friend invited our person to that temple. And with some reluctance, she went. But of course, I mean, she'll, at this point, she'll take help where she can get it. It reminds me a bit of Narendra, later Swami Vivekananda, who was very skeptical about this Mark Ali kind of idol worship thing. But when he had fallen on hard times, he thought, okay, I'll give it a try. So she was like that at her wits end. She decided to go along to the temple, fully skeptical of the whole thing. So she goes inside and she meets this Shiva yogi and the Shiva yogi says, "I'm going to put this crystal lingam on your head, you know, a phallic looking crystal. I'm going to put it on your head, um and I'm going to heal you." Or something like that. And she's like, oh, "More new age stuff." You know, I had a lecture one time where I was like jokingly talking about crystals in the sense that, you know, like really, I think it takes more to be spiritual than hoarding crystals like a dragon. I was just making a joke about that. And then I had to eat my words because I, I found myself weeks later inside of a little kutir worshipping a crystal Sri And I was like, oh my God, I've come full circle. I've rejected crystals, made fun of the new age crystal thing. And now here I am worshipping a crystal lingam and a crystal Sri Anyway, I uh, <laughs> had to eat my words. <laughs> anyway, um, so this crystal lingam is put on her head and for 10 minutes, she says, it's been, it goes, 10 minutes goes by and she claims like, I don't believe in any of this. She's just sitting there and thinking, yeah, yeah, you know. And apparently, according to her, this is her testimony. Something suddenly happened. There was this sense of energy flowing up the center of her spine. And suddenly she sat upright like this. And this was her testimony. She felt as if her eyes were open wider than they'd ever been before. She like felt like this sense of like more space around her eyes. And that was a kind of novel description. I hadn't heard that before. So her eyes were open wider than ever. And then this is very striking. She said all the pain that she felt physically was gone. There was like no pain anymore. And she'd been carrying this pain around forever. And she drinks wine to numb it and takes painkillers. But this time, without any wine, without any painkillers, without any substance whatsoever, she felt light and free of all pain. And, and light, you know, like that's important too because she's kind of felt physically encumbered and heavy, but all of a sudden she felt like she was floating, which makes me think that size has nothing to do with one's feeling of physical exuberance and lightness. You know? She felt light, she felt free of pain. And not only that, it wasn't the end of her suffering. It was also, according to her heightened sense of ecstasy, of bliss, the kind which she's never felt before. She said the only thing she hasn't done is heroin, but she says everything she has done has never been as good as this, but they've been analogs for this. Like the drugs that she has done, she said they gave her a glimpse, but it's not, not as good as this. And so apparently the state persisted for four hours. She, would, if she wasn't in like this, like Samadhi state where she couldn't move or, or couldn't see. She could see and she would walk around and she spent the next four hours speechless. And she would just stand in front of murtis, um, idols at the temple and just stare at them. And she claimed that they came to life for the first time. It's like, it reminds me again of Swami Vekananda, who didn't care much for idols. When he went into that Kali temple on that fateful Tuesday night, um, he felt as if the, the statue was alive like that. So she, her experience was uncannily similar. She was standing in front of statues. She was having this sense that they were alive. And then she went and stood in front of the picture of uh, her friend's guru. Now, her friend had been texting her pictures of this guru for a while. And she like scrolls past them. She's like, ah, stop sending me pictures of your guru. She's an Indian man. Like, I don't want to look at this Indian man. Like, you know. But but she claimed that that day, because of that experience, she saw something in that picture that she'd never seen before. And she stared at that picture for an hour and, and it just it brought her joy to look at this person who she could now sense was in the state that she was in, or at least something like it. So for four hours, this happened. And naturally, it faded. Any state that starts, apparently, as we know, ends, right? So it started and then it ended. But it transformed her permanently. So this is the value of spiritual experience. It's not the experience itself. I'll make this claim here um, in the beginning of our discussion, not really the beginning, it's been 30 minutes, but here in the middle of our discussion or first third of our discussion, that spiritual experiences themselves are not really valuable in and of themselves. But what is valuable is the transformation that comes after. It's the insight that comes from that experience. It's how it changes you and how it changes your life. And truly, this person's life was irrevocably changed. After she tasted that and this thing she had to say about it, she had never tasted anything better and she never knew that this could be possible for a person. She didn't know that life had to offer this level of ecstasy. So this is what is called grace. It was grace that she was now made aware of a higher life, a better way to be in this world, which, you know, um many of us never taste. Most of us live and die by bodily comfort, sensual gratifications, name and fame and power. Most of us enjoy life, certainly. I mean, like I said earlier, there is real joy in things like orgasms and chocolate cake. There's, there's joy in recognition and praise and refined artistic appreciation. Like, you know, the, the, the life of an artist is beautiful. It's a beautiful life. But according to this woman, she never knew uh, that this taste was available. Like of all the dishes offered at the feast, she didn't know there was this, this particular taste. And it made everything else taste good. So for a while after her experience, all those other experiences that she had, like eating food, that was like better. There's something richer and deeper about her life. Something changed in her. Something opened up in her. So that's what we call grace. Now, a week later, or sometime later, she's here in my living room. And now she has this hunger, this insatiable hunger. She's here till 2 a.m. And she's demanding mantras. You know, and and everyone, like every time I present something, she memorizes it and says, okay, thank you, next. She Ariana Grande's me the whole night. You know, I'm like, we do the Isha Upanishad. We do... So many Vedic mantras to Shiva. And we, we do, oh my God. And, and she wants explanations for all the mantras. So she's now on the path. She's properly on the spiritual path. And it came about because of this spontaneous awakening, this, this experience. Mm. Now, in her case, it's quite dramatic, right? But it doesn't have to be. In some people's cases, it's much less dramatic, but no less powerful. Therefore, I don't think the intensity of the experience is what matters. It's the intensity of your quest post the experience. So some people just wake up one day and they're like, you know what? I think I'm going to go on the spiritual quest now. Have no profound revelation. Angels didn't sing a choir to them. You know, uh, uh, they didn't have intense suffering that forced them into spiritual life, as is the case with so many of us. No, one day they just naturally decided, okay, I'm going to be a sadhaka now. This is just, this just seems cool. I'm going to do it. You know, I know someone who, you know how their spiritual life started with an episode of Boston Legal. I kid you not they were you remember the show it was like these two lawyers lawyer duo I don't know maybe it's before some of your time or no actually I'm looking around the room and it's maybe very much after some of your time but there was a show um Boston legal good it's a show about Keeley's father who is a Boston in uh, who is a Boston in lawyer who is a lawyer in Boston so uh Boston legal the, the it's, a, it's a law show it's like it's like Grey's anatomy for lawyers I, I never really watched it but I'm, I'm aware of it Um, So apparently this person was watching an episode of Boston Legal. And in that episode, the case was as follows. Halloween was being celebrated at school, but the Halloween involved like very scary depictions of witches. Now a child went to the school, saw those witches, and came home and told her parents about them. Her parents just so happened to be practicing pagans, like neo-pagans. So they they consider themselves witches. And they were really horrified that their child who they wanted to raise as a neo-pagan, as a witch, had to be confronted with these images that basically a smear campaign against witches is like evil and scary. So you can imagine a child whose parents are witches and you go to school and you see like, ah. and people are like, There are witches. are well, witches. So um, the, the couple sues, sues the school. And you know, this person who was watching the Boston Legal episode, they were like, they were watching and they were like, huh, Wicca, what's that? And they go on the internet and type in Wicca and the next thing they know, they're plunged headfirst into a world of tarot and Alistair Crowley and Western ceremonial magic. And now they're like a devout tantrika, right? Like just through the Western ceremonial magic thing, eventually through the rabbit hole, they ended up in this world of hatha Yoga and then eventually Bhakti Yoga and Karma Yoga and Raja Yoga. Now they're like a ritualist, a tantrika, right? Interestingly, Boston Legal started it. So this grace can come through intense suffering, as we well know. Many people come to spiritual life because of that. Or it can come through intense, dramatic bliss, as in the case of my friend that I just narrated. Or it could come, and, and in her case, it was through the touch of a Shiva yogi. Someone had like done something. But that's not necessary. Sometimes it just comes spontaneously. Um, You might hear the leaves whis- whispering or whistling some tune that you recognize. And then you, uh, I'll tell you another story. Devindranath Tagore, you know, the father of the famous Rabindranath Tagore, the first non-European to win a Nobel prize. The great writer of the Gitanjali, Rabindranath Tagore, he sang beautiful songs in, in Bengali and also in English. One of India's greatest. He's a poet laureate of India. So Rabindranath Tagore's father, um, he was a householder, had many children and was living the life. And he was like, you know, like like, like a devout guy. I and mean, he, he had a sense for religion, but not in any real way. One day he had fallen on hard times and he had gone to the Ganga and he was just sitting on the banks of the Ganga, like disconsolate, I believe. And then the wind blew and a piece of paper like fluttered by and I think fell onto his palm or fell in front of him or something. And he picked up the piece of paper. Now, as you know, along the Ganga, there are many yogis and the yogis like sit and they do their practices. They do their Nadi Shodhana, which we did previously before this lecture. They do their meditation every day, all throughout the day, particularly in the morning and in the evening. And they also study. So the yogis, they read, they read. You'll find yogis studying the Gita or other such texts by the banks of the Ganga. And every now and then a page, you know, uh, cheap paper, sometimes these things are printed. A page might get torn. and it's, but it's not, it's not, just just so you know, it's not totally uncanny that this page should land in front of him on the banks of the Ganga. Anyway, he picks up the paper, he reads it. And believe it or not, it's the first mantra of the Isha Upanishad. Isha Vasya Midagam Saruvam Yatkincha Jagatyang Jagata. This whole world is to be covered with the Lord. This whole world is to be covered with the Lord. You know, the, the, the world is to be enjoyed by renouncing. And and I don't know, he, he'd seen it before, but that day something special happened. Maybe it was the Ganga, maybe it was the suffering that he had currently experienced, whatever it was, that verse, which he's read many times before, is a very learned pandit, you know, very learned man, that verse hit him differently. The, the world should be enjoyed through renunciation and, and some, something changed in him, something shifted. That day itself, I think he went to the Himalayas and he would spend like six months of the year meditating in the Himalayas and then he would come back and be the ideal householder. He, he stayed as a family man, you know, with children, with a wife. And when Sri Ramakrishna met him, he said he was like King Janaka or something like that. Janaka is here actually. Janaka Raj, the great king who was a videha, a free from the body. He was a Jivan mukta, which we're going to discuss a bit more today. Even while being a king, so even while in the midst of his duties, he was still free, liberated while living, and so Devendra Tagore became like that. Just from one page, it set set a, a series set in uh, set in motion a series of, of events that eventually culminated in his sainthood. Very beautiful thing. So notice it can happen out of the blue one day. You might read something, you might hear something in passing. Or the wind might communicate something to you. You might just, you know, um, there's a story of Adya Shanti, right? Who he just he's sitting and meditating and he hears something in the bird song or, or uh, something similar to Eckhart Tolle. He wakes up in the morning after an experience and he hears something in the bird song and he sees a crystal in his mind's eye. These things, they they don't need, they don't necessarily require like teachers, but often a teacher is instrumental in doing it. Someone enlightened says, be aware of being aware or that chair is God or, you know, and, and it happens. It just happens for us. So typically some transmission is required from some living lineage holder, but not always. Very often it can be that it just happens spontaneously on its own. So that's the process I want to describe in depth today. I know we're quite a bit into our lecture, but I can cover it quite quickly, God willing, because there are nine levels, and actually there are 27, but Abhinava Gupta in his Tantra Loka and Tantra Sara lists nine different levels um, of such an awakening with varying degrees of intensity. And understanding his scheme helps us understand a little bit about grace and its role in spiritual life. So that's, I think, my intro to this discussion about grace. You've all experienced it to one degree or another. So I'm not talking about some rarefied experience that's awaiting you sometime later um, on the spiritual path. No, I'm talking about something that has probably happened to all of you. In fact, one thing I might like to do in the Q&A today is if you feel comfortable, I'd like to invite you to share your stories of grace. Now, I'm not particularly interested in how intense it was, Importantly, I just want to know how it transformed you. So I'm going to now put this question out there for the Q&A later. What was one experience? Like one, doesn't have to be many. It could be many, but, but really for today, just like what's one experience that you might consider to be the defining moment of not just your spiritual life, but your life? How did you like get on the path? What eventually, I mean, and, and, and of course, it's a series of things that draws you deeper and deeper into spiritual life. But really often for most of us, there's one singularity. There's one moment or one book or one person that really, really did it for us, you know? I'm going to talk a little bit about what that process is, theoretically, although you've all experienced it practically, I believe. So I'm talking about you and I'm talking about your own spiritual life. Now, understanding this is very important because it's very illuminating, actually, as a sadhaka. As a spiritual practitioner, understanding that grace is the only operant factor in your spiritual life is very important and very helpful. And that's ultimately the claim that I'm going to, that I'm going to make. <laughs> only grace matters not self effort whatsoever only grace matters okay okay so let's start um oh by the way i should say and this is also kind of helpful um but it's kind of rare actually grace you know as it says in the bhagavad gita manushyanam sahasreshu kaschid yatat siddhaye oh, manushyanam manushyana manushya people so Sahas Reshu, out of thousands of people, right? Manushyanam Sahas Reshu, out of thousands of people, only one may endeavor for perfection. So like Krishna is saying to Arjuna, that this state of wanting to, to attain God or attain spiritual realization or go on the quest, you know, like wanting to read Ramana Maharshi or Nisargadatta Maharaj, like wanting to is very rare. There's so many people in the world, how many of them are interested in spiritual life? And I hope that today's lecture will help us overcome any judgment regarding this issue. Because sometimes when people come to spiritual life, they feel like, oh, everybody needs to, right? Like everybody has to be woke or something. So like, I'm going to now preach. Evangelism, uh, uh, the evangelist project is very good only insofar as it invites people to the path. It's not good when it forces that path onto people um, for whom it might not yet be time. But even this language of it might not yet be time is somewhat condescending. So I hope that in today's discussion, you can come to see why it is that only one or two get free. You know, there's that beautiful Ram Prasad song thousands and thousands of kites, but at best only one or two break free and are borne aloft by ethereal winds. And then mother claps her hands in delight. Oh, at best one or two break free. So why is it that out of thousands of people, only one endeavors to realize God? You know, that's, that's, startling odds and not only that out of thousands of people only one or two really will try for spiritual realization and out of that group a very select group um hardly one knows me in truth so (laughs) it's like quite scary actually the idea that there's so few people in the world doing this I mean, you might say it's an increasing number now, but you're probably only saying that because you've come to spiritual life and now you're finding more and more people who are into it. But if you were to take like a cross section of all the people in the world who are doing it, I'm not sure that you could say it's increasing or decreasing. I think there's always going to be a select group of people who are chosen, right? As the Bible say, uh, who are going to be on the path. But of that group, an even smaller subset are going to attain anything whatsoever. And of that group, an even smaller subset will attain the highest. According to Krishna in verse 3, book seven of the Bhagavad Gita, chapter seven of the Bhagavad Gita. So that's an important thing to note also. I hope in this discussion, you'll understand why that's the case and that you will harbor no ill will or sense of superiority when considering those who aren't on the path. You know, um, this, this philosophy about Shaktipata, I think gives us a good way to uh, dissolve such feelings or however subtle they might be. All of us, I think, carry around the sense of we're privileged. I mean, the, the language you're chosen. Okay, good for you. Uh, but we shouldn't feel that the other ways of being in the world whether it's pursuing pleasure somehow inferior just different right hopefully today we'll see how that can be okay so let's let's start our discussion about grace now grace i think thus far we've already we've already gotten a sense for what it looks like in a person's spiritual life but i've only really characterized it as the beginning of one's spiritual life it's the thing that brings you to spirituality but there's also another kind of grace which is that which is 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 operant during your spiritual life so let's say something brings you to the path, right? But it's grace that you get to, I don't know, hang out with a great teacher for two hours, right? Like like maybe there's a great teacher. This actually happened to me. I was very fortunate. There's a great teacher who um, just fortunately, one day I had the opportunity to be in a car with for two hours. And like, that's grace. It's grace that I got to be in a car with a great master for two hours and discuss spirituality. Someone who I wouldn't really get the time to talk um, quite as freely with and quite as privately with as that. But it was totally grace. Uh, and, and it was by grace of the guru, actually, that that sort of thing came about. Now, it might be grace that the right books come at the right time. It might be grace that you find your spiritual sangha, like when you feel most alone and in need of support. It's grace that we find our teachers. It's grace that flows through our teachers consistently throughout our spiritual life. It's grace that we, you know, make progress at all. So not only is grace required to come to spiritual life, grace is required to make any progress whatsoever in spiritual life. You know, um, if you're reading something, it's grace alone that helps you understand what you're reading. Many people read the same stuff. They don't understand it. But through grace, one day when you read something, you understood it. So once M in the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna exclaims to Ram Krishna that he understands something. And, and Sri Ramakrishna says, it's by mother's grace alone that you understand that. You know, you haven't you had that experience, friends, where you're like reading a book, but you're not in the right state of mind and the words just aren't going in and you have to read that line again and again and again? Swami Vivekananda somewhat dramatically says, you could have um, a huge library right, of all these different books, but it's only your karma that will determine which books you pick up and of that, what you understand. <laughs> so I could give this lecture to like a room full of people, but only one or two will really understand what I have to say. And it's not me, nor is it you. It's grace. It's grace alone that allows you to hear what you needed to hear. And it allows me to say what I need to say. Grace alone is the operant factor in this conversation. So grace gets you on the path. It keeps you on the path. It helps you stay the course when things are difficult. And it helps you progress on the path. But it also is the consummation of your path. It is by grace that you realize anything at all, right? So grace is operant in three ways. One, to bring you to the path. Again, during the path. And thirdly, when the path is completed. If ever there could be such a thing. The path is a pathless one. And its destination is the walking. So in any case, grace is, is ubiquitous throughout spiritual life. So don't get the impression that we're only speaking of one singularity, although I might have given that impression. Hope that you know that grace is far more pervasive than just that one awakening moment. Okay. So given that, uh, we have to ask this question then. How does one get it? It's, it's quite the commodity, right? You, you need it to start spiritual life. So if you want to start spiritual life and you can't until you get grace, then this might be a very relevant question. How do I get grace? Now, by the way, to such a person, I would say the very fact that you want grace, meaning the very fact that you want to start spiritual life, is evidence that you've already received it. Right? (laughs) Like a person who hasn't received Shaktipata does not know to look for Shaktipata. They won't value such a thing. They won't value coming to the spiritual path unless they've already come to the spiritual path. (laughs) So that's the circularity of it. A person who hasn't yet received it doesn't typically look for it, doesn't really even believe in it. However, a person who's received the initial grace though that brings them to spiritual life. Ah, now that person might require subsequent doses. They might want to re-up at the rave. So it's to that person that I'm now speaking. Okay, how do you get your (laughs) re-up? How do you get your next pill? How do you get the next bit of grace, if you will? Okay, so there are a few theories. I kid you not, uh, all across the board in Indian spirituality, I think all across the board in world spirituality, there are, I think, four dominant theories about this, about how to get grace. The first is you get it through good works. Now, in the Indian classical context, karma, or even ancient context, the word karma means Vedic ritual, yankhya. It means like performing the rituals as enjoined by the Vedas. So there used to be this idea, and it's still quite prevalent actually in India today, um, and it's prevalent amongst the school known as Purva Mimamsa, where all you do is Vedic rituals. The Vedas tell you what to do um rigveda you know etc you just learn them you learn the rituals you do the rituals and through properly executing these rituals you will um win grace that's one belief another belief is no 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 no. rituals won't do it devotion alone will do it you have to like love the lord so you have to pray for you have to come to the lord and pray for devotion and only that you have to puja so it's no longer karmic like yagyas now it's like bhakti pujas you have to do devotion to the lord uh prityartam, only for the attainment of the Lord's joy, like that. So you basically, you serve the Lord. You, you, you dote upon the Lord. and You do all the things that you would do in bhakti. Say your japa, like that. You japa your way into it. Japa, japa, japa. Om Namasha, Om namashvah, Om namashvah. If you do it enough, grace will come. Okay. So that's another view that not through karma, but through bhakti, you'll get grace. Another view is no, 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 no. Only through renunciation can you get grace. You can't cajole God into giving it to you until you show God that you're ready to receive it. So if you pray and pray and pray, or if you do Vedic Yagnas, all you want, but you still demonstrate a worldly life, then that's like like conveying quite clearly that you don't want the grace that you claim to be seeking, right? If you wanted that grace, you would give up worldly life at once, whether or not you had that grace. Because the, the fact of grace is it takes you to spiritual life. And if you want spiritual life, well, why are you clinging to worldly life? So tiaga, they say, tiaga, renunciation is the path par excellence to get grace. So there's these, these three margas, as you can see. Karma Marga, the path of Vedic rituals. Or you can, I think today you can expand that to include any selfless service. Good works, right? Charity. Be a good guy. Be a good gal, be a good person. And then you'll get grace. So uh, merit or or good conduct, morality gives you grace. That's that's the first part. The second path is devotion gives you grace. Bhakti. The third path is renunciation, gives you grace. Okay, the fourth path, it'll sound pretty bizarre, okay, but this is a very like technical Indian idea. So it's called karma. Are you ready for it? Karma Samya. So here's how it goes. We, each of us, as you know, carry this huge storehouse of samskaras, this accretization of causes that are waiting to flower into effects in this or in future lives. So it's called Sanchita Karma, all the storehouse of karmas. Basically everything we've done, everything we've thought, everything we've said in previous lives, it's, it's a cause. And that cause demands that we, you know, we reap what we sowed. Is it sowed? I don't know how to say the past tense of sow, but we reap what we sowed. So we sowed and now here we are, we didn't sue, But if we sue, then we, we have to reap what we sowed. So now we have to reap that, okay? So that means in this life, I might get a crippling illness, right? Because of some previous bad karma, the effect of that karma was, now I have to get a crippling illness. Okay, fine. But also good karmas, maybe previously I did a good Vedic here So the effect is in this life, I have to enjoy um, something I might be given a feast. Some king might invite me to the palace and uh, feed me. Give me a royal feast, which has happened quite often, thankfully, here in LA. A lot of my friends in Brentwood will invite me over to their houses. And what a sumptuous feast is prepared. And I think, Well, wow, I must have done a good Vedic yakya for this. Thank God I'm not interested in bodily pleasure. But can I have a little more of that fesendium, please? <laughs> anyway, so, <laughs> so interestingly, um, karma is of both kinds, good and bad. And typically, our Sanchita karma, our, our storehouse of karma, is super mixed. It's, it's a mixed bag, to say the least. We've lived so many, so many. Ah, yes. So grace for others. It's a very good good question Fabricio and G is asking. So let's consider that in our discussion today as well. Okay, so grace for ourselves, grace for others. So um, can we get it through karma? Can we get it through bhakti? Can we get it through renunciation for ourselves and for others? Now, this argument though, is that the way you get it is as follows. Because our karma is like a mixed bag, sometimes it just so happens randomly that a good karma and a bad karma flower at the exact same time. I know this is going to sound so technical and weird. And you're going to be like, this is speculative AF. It might be, but this is just the kind of reasoning that you find in Indian philosophies regarding karma and its relation to grace. So, and you find it a lot in the puruba Imamsakas who are very interested in karma theory. So these two karmas, good and bad, of equal proportions, fructify. It just so happens at the same time and they check and balance one another. So it's like, it's like your pinball machine gets jammed. I don't mean to make light of this. It's a serious theory that many people buy into, but it sounds kind of funny to me. So I am, I guess, making light of it. But your pinball machine gets jammed. And as a result, there's a backup. There's what do you call it, like a, like a, like a backlog and no future karmas can manifest. So you're free, <laughs> right? Just you're free by accident almost just because of a karmic mishap. God does not have to be involved. So like more atheistic, non theistic traditions can, can account for grace still. By saying that this is actually what it is, two karmas coming and Block, blocking one another. Okay, needless to say, that theory is is very very speculative, and uh, it's typically tossed uh, because it doesn't. It's not really helpful. It's like oh, so grace is random then. But well, fine. Then we can stop talking about it. But to say something is random is not very scientific. It's like throwing your hands up and saying, okay, I, I will I will give up my quest for causes just because I don't have the subtlety of intellect to search for that. Okay, that's not acceptable. So Indian philosophers generally say it's a plausible theory, but it's not very pragmatic. And therefore let's continue questing and uh, trying to figure out whether there are better reasons for this. Okay, so now we come to the Kashmir Shaiva response. It's none of these, right? Abhinava Gupta in his Vartika of the Malini Vijayotara tantra, meaning in his commentary of a very important tantra, he takes up this issue of grace and he says, it's ridiculous, actually ridiculous to consider that any of these four could be the cause of grace. He accuses them of anavasta dosha, meaning regresses ad infinitum. You say, how do you get grace? Oh, you get it because of doing good works. And then Abhinav is going to ask, well, why did you start doing the good works in the first place? Oh, because of grace. <laughs> oh, um, you get it because of bhakti. But what brought you to the temple in the first place? Like how did you get bhakti to begin with? Grace. Or um, it's because of renunciation. Well, what inspired you to give up the world and renounce? Grace. So you can't say renunciation, karma, or uh, bhakti gives you grace because it takes grace to have those in any capacity whatsoever. So grace is prior to those actions that are typically held to be causes for grace. You see, so this is Abhinavagupta's first response. I think it's clean. And I think it's enough said. To me, it's like a mic drop moment. But Abhinava, he humors us and he continues further and he offers a second level of response. He says, even if, I think a good debater will always give you this, even if. So assuming but not conceding, these activities could give grace, then you've compromised on God's autonomy. Like if you could win grace through these activities, then you have some power over God. Since grace is typically considered the purview of God, it's God's to give if you can somehow cajole that grace out of God, and if God is logically required to give that grace or like contractually obligated to give that grace after X amount of repetition of your mantra, then it's no longer God, right? It's like a call center assistant or something. (laughs) God can't be God without that independence, that autonomy, and that ability to say no to someone who thinks that they're deserving and to say yes to someone who thinks they're not deserving. That's what makes God, God. So that level of freedom requires that there's no such activity that can give you grace. As you know, if there were, then God wouldn't be free. So, Ma Sharada very famously says, what, is God a fish market that you can buy him with so many rounds of japa? I'm paraphrasing. But she, she's saying, like you can't just like japa your way to the Lord in the sense that you think this um, this X number of japa will give you the Lord. There's like a joke about progressive path methods, which, which are sometimes undertaken with the idea of getting something from God. Like, if I say this many Hail Marys, God will forgive me. Wait a minute. Where does it say God has to forgive you after 20 Hail Marys? Perhaps God can forgive you after no Hail Marys, or God will never forgive you after 500 Hail Marys. Who's to say what God can or cannot do? Certainly not you, right? So God is not a fish market or a fishmonger who you can barter with, with X amount of spiritual practice. So this is important. Not only does grace come first before you undertake any spiritual activity, but additionally, God, because God is independent and free, will never out to X amount of japa just because you say that God should. So these are two responses that we get from Abhinava Gupta laughing, I think, at these ideas that are typically bandied about uh, regarding grace. So it does not come through karma. It does not come through bhakti. It does not come through renunciation, Nor does it come through these random double bubbling up of karmas. Because if you assert that, Um, I think what you could say is, well, it was God's grace that that happened at all. If that's the mechanism, then God had to be the agent that put that mechanism into effect. So even if we accept that the way to get grace is to like check and balance two equally strong karmas against one another, then it must be God who causes that to happen. Otherwise, how could that karma fructify as well as that one? No, there's got to be something that works the mechanism. Okay. So these are some just like brief arguments against the idea of grace being bought. So now we have a problem. The problem is, well, then what do I do? It seems like I can't, I, yeah. And, and if, if, if you, if you, if you get that conclusion, you're right. There's nothing you can do for grace. There's absolutely nothing you could do for grace whatsoever. Um, and that's the invitation to surrender. You will be liberated just when you will be liberated. It's not your business to worry about that. You will come to spiritual life on God's time. You will progress on her time right? You can't force the, you, you can't say, oh, I should be making this much progress by this time. No, <laughs> you could make a tremendous amount of progress in a short time or no progress in a long time. That's entirely up to God. And you will be realized when God decides you'll be realized. So that's why we've been speaking somewhat dualistically, right? There's God and here's me and God's giving grace. But you know, that's not the view of Kaula Tariqa tantra The view is that only God exists. So now we come to an even subtler part of our discussion. So then who's gracing who and why? So let's say we accept this theory. Okay. We accept that grace cannot be earned. Grace is given by God alone. There's a very troubling conclusion that will come from that. So God is partial. You see, if grace could be earned, then there's a merit system in place. You can't accuse God of nepotism, right? Meritocracy is the solution to like nepotism. Like if you had this, this scale of how much this person deserves it, you know, because they work so hard, they're so pure. Look how renounced they are so holy there's no wonder they got grace then, then then you you save God from this very difficult question of why him why her not me right am I so different that you so now the abhinava Gupta position of grace being totally within God's free will is at risk of being accused as follows like then you portrayed God as this partial being right okay. So let's, let's respond to a few of these objections. So if, if there is grace, then surely God is partial to some and not to others. Why would she keep some in bondage and liberate only a few? By the way, I hope you can intuit that this discussion is now about bondage and liberation, which is a very important issue in Indian spirituality. Some Indian spiritual traditions like Ramanujas believes that bondage and liberation are real things. So realist schools believe that bondage is real, liberation is real. So there are some Christian schools that believe that you really did fall from the garden and therefore, liberation is real. Salvation is real. Why? Because bondage is real. However, contrastingly, there are schools who say, and Christian schools too, like The Course in Miracles, um, they believe that, no, 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 there's no real bondage and therefore no real liberation. As we said last week, the the philosopher par excellence for this is Gaurapada. Gaurapada says, uh, na cha bhandho, na cha there's no bondage, therefore there are no seekers. There's no one is bound. Therefore, na mukshu, na muktaha. There's no seekers after liberation. There's no liberated beings because no one was ever bound to begin with. So no one is ever liberated. So notice you have a scale. On one side of the scale, there are schools that reject the reality of bondage and liberation wholesale. It's all an illusion, like a dream. And on the other side, you have schools that accept the reality of bondage and liberation, usually on the basis for how it feels. The other schools say, just because it feels a certain way doesn't mean it is that way. And the other schools say, well, you can't just make believe it's not the way it feels. So this is debate, you know, in India. Um, and all over the world about how real your bondage is. You see, if it's real, then the progressive path people are right. You have to do something. But if it's not real, then the Gyanamarga marga, advaita, like direct path people are right. You don't have to do anything. You just have to recognize that it was never real. So basically, if you're in a prison, fight to get out. I once read a Stevie Ray Vaughan quote. Here's my rock and roll reference. Um, he said, I play guitar like I'm busting out of jail. I think it's so great. You know, He like really puts his heart and soul in it. It's about pride and joy my sweet little thing it's my pride and joy you know he's like he's like. you know he plays like he's really he, he's so intense right he's breaking out of jail and for him probably because he feels the jail to be real he's struggling with the alcoholism and the, the, the difficulty of fame and, and what have you he's struggling and therefore he's got a certain intensity <laughs> good so there's this intensity that comes when you do believe that the bondage is real so th- therefore, um, schools that believe in real bondage, realist schools, and by the way, you're all hip to that phrase, realism, idolism, like that now, right? Because of that previous lecture. So I, I, I'm i just going to like not explain. But the realist schools, they believe in bondage. They, they tend to be more towards the progressive part. Whereas if you weren't really in jail, then you just have to recognize that. You don't have to bust out of a prison that never was there in the first place. So like, if the walls don't exist, you don't have to bore a hole through them. So the direct path people say, just recognize this, you don't have to practice. And the direct path people typically lead on the side of idolism. The world is not really there. So where does Kashmir Shaivism fall on this scale? And I think it's doing something really beautiful, really innovative that you find in Ramakrishna Vivekananda, but it's not typically articulated. So I want to maybe give some voice to it. So If there is such a thing as grace, then surely God is partial to some and not to others, right? So why should she keep some in bondage and liberate only a few? The answer to this is, assuming but not conceding bondage and liberation is real, are real, then we have to remember that this is a non-dual philosophy to its core. Only one exists. By the way, if you want proof of non-duality, we'll save that for the Q&A. We do that in other lectures. Today, I'm just going to take it on faith that you understand that this this is a non-dual philosophy and you understand how it can be so. I hope that I'm, I heard some Kashmir Shaiva people like teaching Kashmir Shaivism recently and they just like say stuff. They'll just say, oh, Shiva is the one non-dual absolute and Shiva is playful. And, and, and it's like it's like they're, they're giving you a religion to believe in. But I was aghast. I thought, you know, if you're going to say that only one exists, you have to prove it, right? I have to show you in the light of your own experience that awareness alone exists. And I, if you're going to say it's playful, I have to show you in your own experience that this is the play of awareness. So I sometimes feel, and the reason the lectures go forever is because I feel like I don't want to say anything without properly qualifying it and grounding it in your experience. And that's why we tend to launch into these like thought experiments and and guided meditations in in the lecture because I don't want to just say that it's non-dual without showing you, right? Today though, I hope you'll forgive me. I'll just gloss over it. So, you know, from previous lectures and we can have a talk about it, it. It's demonstrably true that only awareness exists And this entire world is a reflection within the mirror of awareness. It appears, as BN Pandit beautifully says, in the psychic light of awareness, right? So um, given that, everything within that light, within that psychic light, is awareness and awareness alone, okay? There's nothing there that is not awareness. In other words, if you see a reflection in a mirror, like say the reflection of a city, as variegated as that reflection is, everything you touch will just be glass through and through. Similarly, in this world, though there seems to be such plurality, and this is the truth, each and everything is wholly saturated with God through and through. There's not like one thing that's more God and one thing that's less God. No, no, no. The pile of shit is as holy, holy shit as like your altar or like your guru, okay? So if you touch your guru and you touch a heaping pile of shit, you're touching the same thing. God and God alone. I promise you, this whole thing is just God. This is my, my claim that you will take on faith. It's demonstrably true, though. How we live according to that is a different thing, but at least it's, it's intellectually obvious. Anyway, so this being the case, then there's no other. And if there's no other, there's no risk of partiality. So when we say God is being partial, that requires that God is separate from her creation and God is separate from her devotees. If that's the case, if you're working from a dualistic paradigm, no, um, Hrithik, I'm not sure I can give you an uh, etymology of the word holy shit. I know I, I speak, I sound like I have a lot of authority, and I say a lot of things um, with that, that ring of authority. So I hope you won't think that I'm offering now an exegesis on the phrase, holy shit. I'm not sure it can be traced to this teaching at all. <laughs> anyway, so, um, but I would find it in that. So now here's the important. Um, if God is separate from her creation and if God is really separate from all of her um, various devotees, then you can accuse her of partiality. Why not? But because she's not, because she is all of her devotees, the quote-unquote bound souls are none other than God. <laughs> good, yeah, I think that's great. <laughs> oh, good. Wait, hold on. Let me put Anna on the screen. Wait, put that out. Are you Are you gonna get that tattoo? Hold on, put that back on. That's great. There you go, everyone. Tattoo ideas. <laughs> it's <good. laughs> no, it's funny. I I have this this Trident, and and um, some people were thinking of getting it. I was like. This is when the cult begins. You're not in unless you have the trident tattoo. And then you'll give all your possessions. Because after all, i shared the community. We have to have shared... <laughs> I'm joking, honestly. There's a Reddit out there. Is Nish the Fish a cult? Can you please all demonstrate some cult-like behavior? Go to that Reddit post and like say something. Please. I'm kidding. <laughs> to, to the contrary. And make sure it's all the same thing. Some like glowing review or something like that with eyes wide open and how everyone should go. <laughs> anyway, so you can't accuse God of uh, impartiality because everyone that's bound is God. So the people that receive grace is God, the people are God, and the people that don't are God. So how can God be partial when God is only feeling grace out to God or withholding grace from God? So this is the first response from the non-dual Kaula Trika tradition to this, this refutation. Okay, the second refutation um, is, if God is playfully enacting her will, you know, and, and that's the claim that bondage and liberation is not real. It's just like a play. It's, it's it's a drama that God is staging for herself in the name of her own infinite self-exploration. Then why bother, right? Like why go through the trouble of bondage at all? Because if this is God's play and it's all happening uh, through the independent will of the Lord, why introduce an element of bondage, right? Couldn't it just all be hunky-dory, sunshine, fun, and games? You know, Um, why have evil at all? So this is a a kind of theodicy. You know, why is there evil? If everything is really created by God, remember there's no free will here because it's just God and God throughout. The free will is God's free will. And if God is truly free, why would she freely choose to suffer? You know, that's that's a great question. And we could do whole lectures on it and we have. But I'll say this briefly, just to like uh, allude to those other lectures. It's just God's nature to do this. You know, you don't really ask why a fire is hot. Do you? A fire is hot. It's the nature of the fire to be hot. There's no like teleology to the heat of the fire. It's a description of the nature of the fire. So when we say the world is infinitely varied, well, that's just a description of the play of the Lord. That's just the way she plays. Is more of an explanation really necessary? We don't think. Abhinava Gupta says, the, the thing that makes play play is that it's inscrutable. And you just heard Anna pray that the will of Maya is inscrutable. It's an in inscrutable Maya. Uh, Because she's playing. And so she's typically depicted as drunk. Drunk, why? Because Divine Mother is unpredictable. There's no knowing what she will do next. So the first line of response, and there's more, don't worry. We won't stop here. The first line of response is something like skeptical theism. Like this is not worth asking because it's the, the, the caveat, the axiom is that it's the nature of the divine to be playful. Oh, interestingly, a whirling Sufi is now entering the Zoom room. I just saw someone show up a whirling Sufi. That's awesome. So... She's a whirling Sufi in the sense that she's just whirling and whirling and whirling and and she stumbles and she staggers drunkenly and she's just playing and she's going to knock over a few glasses in the process, right? She's going to paint a beautiful painting, but she's also going to spill wine all over the carpet. That's just her her drunken play. That, that's why we depict her as such. So that's just an and by her, I mean awareness that I'm talking about you. So this awareness that you are, it's just playful. That There's no rhyme or reason for it. And this is what the play looks like. Okay. That's one answer. So you can't ask why. You can't ask why of something if it's its nature to be that. So you can't ask why heat if fire is by nature hot. Okay, second line of response. Why not? Right? So um, uh, this is a beautiful response, actually. If you are so free, then you're not afraid of being bound. Right? In other words, if you were, absolutely independent, absolutely free, but you decided to create a one-sided creation that was good things only, that would show that you were bound by duality and therefore not free. You're not free enough to radically accept the other side of the duality, which is evil. So if you prefer good to evil, then that's a conditioned kind of God and a conditioned God is not a free God. So if you say God chooses good and not evil, you're saying that um, God is afraid of evil and we can't have that. So the answer is, why not? If 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 she's truly free, then she won't bark at evil. What not? You know, how do you practice this, by the way? Uh, you practice this by saying yes to everything in life because you're free enough to enjoy it. You know, if something happens in your life that you don't like, you can say, well, why not though? Right? Like I, I I might prefer some other situation. Like I might prefer to eat tonight than to be hungry. But why not be hungry? Is it such a big deal? And I'll suffer, but why not? And then maybe tomorrow something will come along or not. Right. And and that's the, that's the power and poetry of recognizing that you are this God who is not afraid of evil and is able to say, why not? So Swami Saruparandaji is is often asked about this, about why something rather than nothing. And now remember the Vedantic explanation is Maya. Maya is the the reason that everything appears as it is, but it's really just Brahman through and through. So you can ask, why does Brahman take the trouble at all? Why bother to appear as anything at all? And the answer will be, why not? (laughs) Brahman has two phases. One, pralaya, where it doesn't look like anything at all. And another phase of shishti, where it looks like all of this. But at no point does it stop being Brahman. It's Brahman in pralaya. It's Brahman in shishti. So this manifoldness is an illusory manifoldness. Really, there's only one. And it's Brahman through and through. So given that, you don't have to ask why. Because there's no real question. You know, there's, not, there's, not, there's no thing to explain. There's no second thing to explain. It's just this one thing. And it's nature to appear like this. <laughs> so that's the response okay we can do better third response because it's not real remember Kashmir shaivism doesn't accept bondage as real and if bondage is not real then why not so the ne- this this next level of why not is maybe more psychologically satisfying because the first two have to do with absolute reality we're making claims about the nature of absolute reality it's and by say absolute I should I should point here absolute reality but you know intellectually we always feel like it's it's like a speculation but that absolute reality and it is until it isn't but the absolute reality is playful. That's the accent. It's playful, it's innately creative, it's exuberant, and it does this. It just does. This is this is its game, and it's not up to me, right, to 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 say what the game will be, except that it is because I am that. So now Kashmir Shaivism will take one step, quote unquote, down from the absolute, but not really, because you are always the absolute. It can speak to you on your terms, and it can say, "Aren't there things that you too enjoy that you might call evil? Like when's the last time you saw a horror movie? That I mean." I love horror movies, right? And some of you don't. But you also like, I don't know, abusive relationships. <laughs> okay. But you voluntarily enter into them. You know, like, you intuit that this is just going to be bad. But you, like, enter into them. Uh, but but art, I think art's the best example. We use art as a pramana a lot. Like, you you, you watch things that are scary. Oh, Anna. hey, Anna mean Anna. The two Annas are here today. Good. Yes, <laughs> I'm happy. There, the two Annas. <laughs> okay, wait, there's... There's one Anna, there's two Anna, I'm looking for the third Anna. There's one more Anna here. Where's that Anna? Oh, no, that Anna left there. Uh, okay, but then I would have three Anna season. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Color are. for the palindromes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my wife's name is a palindrome, Hannah, H-A-N-N-H. Okay, now how do I get you people off the screen? <laughs> Okay, so the 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 double annas, it's like a The annas. Um, so <laughs> this this idea of like you yourself will watch something scary, but not only that, you'll go and look at a hieronymous spot. Can any? By the way, Saint Anthony, I let's keep track of these questions because he asked two questions for the Q and A, I don't want them to get lost in the chat. So I'm just like mentally flagging now. But there are two questions from Saint Anthony to answer. Okay, good. So. Now, um, wait, wait, wait. yes, you you look at the Hieronymus Bosch painting. It's not like you go to an art museum and you only want to see nice art. You, you're happy to see Hieronymus Bosch. And, and in that painting, there's nice stuff. There's also scary stuff. And I, I find that people are more interested in the scary stuff. <laughs> you know, when people take pictures of Hieronymus Bosch, it's usually like the crazy, scary animals like devouring people. Like that's the part that seems to fascinate them. Have you seen kids in roadkill? They're like, they love to look at roadkill. You know, they're like curious about it. You're just like, oh, ew. you know, kids want to check out Roadkill most of the time, even if it's disturbing to them. So that there's something innate to the human experience where we do actually seek out the macabre. We do like um bad art, scary art, the room. <laughs> I like the room. Thank you, Janika Ji. Yeah, so we, 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 we enjoy as much as we enjoy beauty, we also enjoy beauty in the horrible. So in our own experience, we can see how that's the... Yes, absolutely, Whirling Sufi, you can. Uh, you can ask in the chat there's going to be a Q&A imminently. I'm getting to the end soon. Nobody believes me when I say that anymore, but really, in, in, in what I have to say, I'm coming. But we'll get into the Q&A imminently. Okay. Yeah, that's why the shit emoji is smiling. It knows something. It's no, it knows it's the shit St. Anthony He's saying in the Q&A. It knows it's fully shit. Okay, so um, notice, if you yourself are happy to step into a movie cinema and enjoy a scary movie it demonstrates that awareness too will enjoy a scary movie, except you're the actor and the movie is your life. Now, it's okay because it's a movie. This is what's important. If at Mark my words. If at any point you take any of this to be real, you will suffer. It's not. It's no more real than a dream. All of this is make-believe. Your your mind is projecting into existence that by which you suffer. But that's okay because recognizing that, you don't need the suffering to go away. I mean, by suffering, I mean the, the pain or the grief. You just need to... Recognize that You're projecting it. This is your movie. And then actually it doesn't become suffering anymore. It becomes ecstasy. So this is, I think, a mode of experience that the Shaiva gets to enjoy that maybe the more quiescent schools don't. Because the quiescent schools are interested in this transcendence-only experience. They want to end all suffering. And it's almost like trying to kill the mosquito, they've killed the man upon which the mosquito has landed. In trying to get rid of suffering, they've also got rid of the possibility of enjoying pain, enjoying grief, which the Shaiva wants to maintain. But the only way to do that is by recognizing that none of this is real and then enjoying it anyway. Swami so Vekananda, which we started this series with, he right, said, um, be mad with joy, even at evil. Now, by the way, if it wasn't evil, you can't be mad with joy at it. it has to, you have to recognize it as evil and then enjoy it, recognizing that it's not real. So that's, I think, the answer. Bondage and liberation are not real. So if you ask, why bother? Why go to the trouble? The answer is, why not? And the answer is, well, if you want to why? for fun, it is fun. This drama is fun. And ask yourself, all those horrible things that have happened to you, the joy of like the other side of that thing is, is always worth it. So it pays off in some sense. You know, and, and you learn. There's, there's, you can say all of it is for learning. So do watch the, the, the Odyssey trilogy. Oh my God. Suddenly, I have a list. The Odyssey trilogy, right? Where that we did three lectures on the problem of evil, and you'll find a lot of answers there for why this rather than nothing. Why go to the trouble of Illusory bondage whatsoever, why not just be liberated from the get-go? This is why. Okay. Third answer, and this this brings us to a very interesting close to our discussion, a very beautiful part of the discussion. If God's grace is the only operate factor, and it is, right? It's it's God's grace, it's, it's independent and freely willed by God and God alone. She chooses to wake up whenever the fuck she wants to wake up and she can stay asleep for as long as she wants to sleep. So if God's grace is the only operate factor in a person's liberation, And if God's grace cannot be earned through spiritual practice, like we said earlier, then why bother to engage in spiritual practice at all? That should be the next question that comes to mind. And so you might, like the direct path people say, well, then I won't do any spiritual practice. I'll just wait for grace. No, here's why not. Because um, it's grace that you engage in spiritual practice. Why? (laughs) Because it's, (laughs) right? Isn't that funny? (laughs) It sounds like an out. But because it's fun. Spiritual life is fun recognizing that you're already liberated, it's really fun to throw yourself into the game of becoming free. Do you know what I mean? It's fun to struggle with your daily three meditations a day. It's fun to fail from time to time. And it's fun to like, you know, read my call to arms and renew your resolve and come back to the mat. It's it's fun to check in and be mad at yourself for not checking in. It's It's fun to celebrate a milestone. It's fun to grieve. Uh, some backsliding. And all of that's fun. The, the spiritual quest is one of the greatest adventures of a human life. It might take you all over the world, but it also will take you all over the psychic world. You'll go inward and explore so many different sensations and emotions. And there's so many experiences to be had, so many flavors of joy, so many flavors of grief. It's, I feel like a spiritual person enjoys more and also suffers more. Uh, maybe not true, but I think they're more sensitive. Whereas I think people in the world, although there's a lot of suffering in the world, most of us aren't actually sensitized to that. We don't actually feel suffering as suffering. Whereas the Viveki says the Yoga Sutra, 215, I believe, um, acutely is aware that pain is the brother of pleasure. They're twins. Swami Vivekananda says, pain comes wearing a crown of thorns. So the Viveki is distinctly aware of that, keenly feels the suffering of the world. And the Viveki, as Subrisaoji pointed out earlier, feels the suffering of others. Like the burden of the world weighs heavily upon them. So the largeness of the heart in some ways increases their propensity for suffering. I think spiritual people suffer a lot more because of their increased sensitivity and their increased empathy, but they also enjoy a lot more. So as Khalil Gibran might say, they cry all of their tears and laugh all of their laughs. laughter, but not all of us do that. We live very bland, very boring lives. The life of a spiritual aspirant, though, I mean, as far as mother's games go, this has to be the most refined and the most exalted. Trying to be a famous musician is a great game. It's fun. It's worth doing. Trying to be a famous painter is a great game. Trying to be a great scientist. Great game. Like in the Oppenheimer movie, which I got a chance to see. Um, great game, right? That's a game. It's, it's a wonderful game to play. All of that. Politics and all this wonderful game. But the best game, the most rewarding game, is the spiritual quest. See fin- I'm saying that because I'm a spiritual aspirant. No, no, no. I, thank you for the amen. I wish we were in one of those like live settings where you go, amen. I would appreciate that. <laughs> but, but it's, yeah, <laughs> amen. But, but um, I'm saying that because I'm a spiritual aspirant. So that might not actually be true. I'm saying, okay, it's the best game to play. But I'm only saying that uh, because that's the way it feels for me. It's the best game that I know how to play. And so it's the game that I spend my whole life playing. Or God willing, can spend the rest of my life playing. But that might not be true for someone else and doesn't need to be true for someone else. So all games are worth playing. That's that's the next claim I'm going to make. It seems like all games lead to the spiritual game, but I want to make an even more radical statement that I want to say like, actually, there's no, that's not true. Every game is as spiritual as every other game. Because to say the spiritual game is better implies that some dualities operate. Like in spirituality, you go to God, whereas in the other things you don't. My ass, you think the scientist is looking at anything but God when she considers her atoms? The atoms are God, the chemicals are God. So the scientist is as spiritual as the rest of us. The musician is as spiritual as the rest of us. I, I might even say the murderer is as spiritual as the rest of us. Why? Because um, there's only God. And since there's only God, every game in town is God's game and no game is better than any other game. So heck, if you wanna go out and be a like musician, do it. And know that you're doing nothing but interfacing with God. You're on your spiritual quest, whether you know it or not. And you might come to realize the highest through that without ever once discussing God. It's possible. You know, art and spirituality, so art and science can get you just where religion can get you. It's not a privilege religion or spirituality. That's deep insight we get from Swami Vivekananda. He says, Sister Nivedita, in the beginning of um, her reflection in her various volumes on Swamiji, she says, he obliterated the distinction. I'm paraphrasing. He, he obliterated the distinction between sacred and secular. Everything is God. And so all games are fun. So given that, you should practice, but not because you have to, because it's just so fun to. And, and by the way, the game won't work if you like pretend its rules aren't real from the beginning. Like, okay, imagine if you go to a movie and then you just whisper to everyone, it's special effects. You know, it's, it's, it's not real blood, right? Like that would ruin the movie. Similarly, if you tell yourself, Oh, I don't really need to meditate. So I shouldn't, you're ruining the game. The only way to play the game is that I should meditate and I want to meditate every day. I must meditate with increasing quantity and quality. So you have to opt in to the rule of the game, which is progressive pop. But all the while, you're aware the back of your mind of the direct path, which is, but I'm free already. So if you're on the path and you fail, no big deal, right? Because you're already free. So nothing can take away your freedom in any way. So if you're like, say your ideal is brahmacharya and you should fall short for some reason, then you say, okay, no big deal. Don't beat yourself up over it. It's a game. And I had a bad throw, you know, maybe I came into contact with some sexually suggestive media. And then that created this samskara and that samskara expressed itself as a compromising of my ideal. Fine, bad throw, bad play. Okay, this next time, starting now, I'm gonna try for that ideal again. No big deal. Just pick up, dust off and continue, right? And then the next time you fail, you'll apply the same. However, you never backslide and feel like, oh, therefore I don't have to do anything. No, you try. You, without dragging the ideal down, you try for the ideal. And every time you fall short, you keep the ideal in place and you keep going for no other reason than because it's fun to do it, because it's a game to do it. So notice what Kashmir Shaivism has ended up saying is, it's not affirmed bondage or liberation, nor has it really denied it. It's affirmed it, but as a game, as a show, as a play, as a leela. And as such, you can't have both. You can have the progressive path. And typically in this Sangha, you'll find an emphasis on that a progressive path, right? I really think that we're selling ourselves short when it comes to spiritual life. We don't have high enough ideals, we we don't try to live the truth as much as I think we should. Um, we, we, we claim to know the truth, but it, for most of us, and I mean, it's it's manifesting true, Just live with the jnani. Like live with someone who claims they know the truth. Like you'll see that they, they don't like in every moment live um, unaccordingly, I'm sorry, live accordingly to the truth. They, oh, they have slip ups and, and they feel upset and depressed and they suffer. And they, they don't taste the, the deepest joys that are available in spiritual life. These are states, they come and they go, yet they're still worth pr- pursuing. They're worth stabilizing. They're worth grounding in. It's, it's, it's worthwhile trying to have a vision of God. It's worthwhile trying to live in that state. It's worthwhile trying to keep the mind on a high plane. It's worthwhile pursuing spiritual experiences. All of that is worthwhile without ever once forgetting that you need none of it, that you're whole and complete as you are now, spiritual experience or no. That you should keep close to heart. That you should stay with, that you are here and now free always was, always will be. No amount of spiritual practice can add anything unto the wholeness that you now yourself are, nor can any lack of spiritual practice remove from you or diminish your perfection. You are Shiva. And as Shiva, now you can really play the game, the game of being a spiritual aspirant. which brings me to my final thing, devotion. In the game of spiritual life, there are many different, you know, you go to arcade, there are many different things you can do. You can do Guitar Hero, Yana Yoga. I recently went to an arcade after a long time with Cinema. Cinema and I just went wild in an arcade. Is me here. I thought I saw her coming. Oh, yeah, there she is. So Cinema and I, we just went to the arcade and we just like, I spent hundreds of dollars, your money actually, because all I, I spent that on the on the what do you call it on some chips, the, the arcade chips, and then Sydney and I just practiced tantra in the arcade you know like played all these games the idea was like just feel the chaos of it with all these lights and and to feel the whirling ecstasy of it it was wonderful so okay i've got my feel though so in there's so many games there's guitar hero then there's like the air hockey and then there's all these different games at the arcade similarly if you go to the arcade of spiritual life there's jnana yoga there's karma yoga, there's bhakti yoga, there's raja yoga, all these different games, which one is better? It seems like the Indian philosophers have been arguing back and forth for centuries about which game is better. Obviously, different people will prefer different games. And each game is just as joyful as every other game, depending on who's playing, right? And why should you confine yourself to any one game? You can go from air hockey to like guitar hero, which I tended to do a lot that evening. So it's important to remember that um, they're all just games and they're all equally valuable. Now, It seems like Kashmir Shaivism, though, does take a stance about bhakti. And it claims that bhakti is the consummation of spiritual life. Um, Unabashedly, it's the consummation of spiritual life. Sitar here, Ramakrishna's, yeah, he says, why should I be one note? Why should I play one note on the flute? I want to play ragas and raginis. You know, I want to be multidimensional. I want to sing Hare Krishna one moment, and then I want to be lost in non-dual meditation the next. I want to worship the Divine Mother, and then I want to dance like Gauranga. You know, I want to be a Muslim. I want to be a Christian. So that, that's the attitude. You're right. Sitar hero, play. I have all five notes, not just the easy mode, the before notes, you know, enjoy. So, yeah, exactly. As soon as a string is played for one second, we'll go to Samadhi. Brahmananda heard a musician tuning and that tuning alone was enough to send him into Samadhi. The sound, he said, Shabda Brahman, Snada Brahman, sound alone is Brahman. Okay, I digress. So, Given this, it seems like Kashmir Shaivism is very liberal in what you practice. All practices, being Shiva, will always lead you to Shiva. However, um, bhakti seems to be the highest expression of a realized soul. So um, I'll give you a few quotes. This, these are from um, Shiva Sutra Bali. So Shiva Sutra Bali, notice it's a very bhakti sort of hymn, but it's written by a great jnani by no less than Utpala Deva, the composer of the Ishvara Pratyabhigya Karika, in which he demonstrates his prodigious intellect and his jnana sent like leanings. Mm-hmm. You see the same t- person like Sri Ramakrishna could be a great gyani and also a great Bhakta. this is the ideal of Kashmir See how he says in uh, 116.21, he says, Oh Lord. Thou art delighted by our devotion and our devotion towards thee depends on your delight. So see the the, the Shaktipata, like I, I'm devoted to you because it delights you. But by your delight, by your grace, I've become devoted. The way that they are interdependent is known only to you, Lord. You see, so it's like a feedback loop. You give me grace, I feel devotion. The more devotion I feel, the more grace seems to come. That's the feedback loop. Then he says, So here, devotion in brackets, because it's not senior, but it's the parama Bhumi. It's the highest ground of Bhakti. If, if you really, if, if, sorry, of Gyana, <laughs> Freudian slip, Gaurangian uh, slip. See, if you are really a Gyani, if you really get to the the fullest consummation of jnana, you will see Brahman in all things. You'll be filled with devotion. The rest of your life will be an unceasing kirtan to the Lord. So it says the jnani, the highest jnana is bhakti, which you find in Sri Ramakrishna and Swami Vivekananda. Yoga, yoga, yogasya parma dasha, the highest yoga, the highest level of yoga is bhakti. Oh Lord, when will my desire for bhakti become consummated? See, uh, Utpala Deva is here privileging bhakti over the others. He's saying through jnana and through raja, you can get bhakti. He's saying that's the highest. Okay, final one. Mukti sangya vipakvaya bhakti reva Oh Lord, liberation is the name given only to the perfectly ripened devotion to you. So Sri Ramakrishna would always say, when you find a true devotee, know that you are in the presence of God because God is the devotee, meaning the devotee has become what she has dissolved herself into. So the most awakened Shiva is that Shiva who is most devotional. That seems to be the claim. Like this, this is the Kashmir Shaiva claim that through understanding that all is God, somehow or other, you become devotional to everyone and everything. Your whole life is bhakti. So bhakti is the highest attainment. So it seems like we are cashing in our, our chips for bhakti. We're saying that like bhakti is the ultimate, but not as a path, notice. We're saying all the paths are good. We're, we're saying it's the ultimate in terms of the state. Like That's the natural expression of recognizing the oneness as all things and in all things, right? Okay, so... Maybe we'll save the nine levels. Oh, I can't, I can't, sorry. Give me a few more moments. I don't think I can end this lecture in good faith without at least giving you a skeleton of Abhinavar Gupta's nine levels of Shaktipata. So when you receive Shaktipata, sometimes through a guru or sometimes just because, remember, it's always coming through Shiva. That's why you don't necessarily need a person. It can come through a person, no doubt. But that person is only being used used in instrument. Really, Shiva gives unto Shiva, Shaktipata. You're really giving yourself grace when you decide to wake up. So when Shiva is bored of the game of being a worldling, he'll just wake up. Uh, and he could wake up, according to these, uh, uh, at least Abhinav Gupta thinks, nine levels of intensity. So level one. Now, they're, they're split into three categories. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're split into three categories. The first one is called, I'll put it in the chat so you can read it. Tirva. Where is it? Tivra. Tivra. I spelled that wrong. Tivra, Tivra, which means intensely intense. Oh, in fact, I typed this out earlier so that I wouldn't have to do this now. Look, foresight. I'm learning. Okay, here we go. So the first one, this is the three categories. There's, there's okay, there's Tivra. This is one category. Tivra, which means intense. Then there's Madhya, which means middle. And then there's Manda, which means weak. So there's a strong Shaktipata, there's a middle or moderate Shaktipata, and there's a limp weak weak like Shaktivamkini. All of them are valuable, and they all give you different experiences, okay? And this is all by Shiva's own will. So if, if she wants a strong Shaktipata, she can give herself that. Anytime. She wants a weak one, she can give herself that. And her reasons are, like we said, not for us to debate about, just for fun. So, within Tivra, Madhya, and Manda, there are further subdivisions. There's the Tivra of Tivra, the Madhya of Tivra, the Manda of Tivra, like that. And within Madhya, there's the Tivra of Madhya, the Madhya of Madhya, the manda of Madhya, you see. And within that, you could further subdividing and ultimately end up with 27. But Abhinava thinks that's not important. It's enough to just like have nine. So we start with the first one. tivra tivra, intensely intense. So suffice to say that this is so powerful. It's such an opening to the joy and splendor of non-dual uh, bliss that you just absorb yourself in it forevermore. So Ramana Maharshi pretty much had this one. Like he's lying down one day and he does very little sadhana, no guru, nothing. He just, his father died. He's trying to figure out like what dies when the body dies. And he just, he asks himself, who am I? And almost immediately he's liberated. Now, the thing he does is disappear uh, into a mountain cave. And for like a long time, he's just meditating in ceaseless samadhi. So that, that, this is a very intense awakening, right? And typically it leads to Videha Mukti. Now, fortunately, Ramana was kept around. His body was kept for the benefit of the rest of us. But I think if he was left alone, he would have just, you know, the insects had started to eat his body and he would have just, Sri Ramakrishna Paramahansa, he himself had to be fed forcibly by some wandering monk who by providence happened to chance upon his body in Samadhi. He was in Samadhi for six months and if that monk hadn't fed him, you know, the monk, by the way, would beat him with a stick so he would open his mouth and then he would shove a few morsels into his body. If he didn't do that, Ramakrishna would have died. His body would have fallen away. Similarly, Ramana, if someone hadn't discovered him and sat by him and nursed him, um His body would have gone also, I think. Because this this awakening can happen. And it's so intense that you just become absorbed forevermore in non dual Which shows you, you know, that this is perhaps higher than the jivanmukta Mukta state. That seems to be the implication. It's such a strong sense of one's innate bliss that one doesn't even feel like tasting that bliss through the instrument of the body anymore, it seems like. The joy of this Videha Mukti is just, yeah, no one can look at the face of God and live. I think that's right. That maybe speaks directly to this super, super you know, this Videha Vukti. Okay. Am I at an hour and 45 minutes of this lecture? <laughs> okay, I think I am. Sorry. What to do? So next, um, there's this Mantia Mantia. There's number two. Sorry, sorry. Th- there's the Mantia tivra number two. So remember, tivra Tevra is basically KO. I mean, it doesn't have to happen immediately, but like shortly after you get this awakening, you'll probably plunge into Samadhi forevermore. You typically don't come back. Um, yeah, right? So this is Tibra Tivra. Now, Madhya Tivra, moderately intense. So this is still very intense because if you receive this, you will be what is called a jivan Mukta, liberated while in body. There and then, you don't need anything more. You have a full understanding that you are Shiva. By the way, liberation here means you know that you're Shiva. And, and in some cases, that knowledge of being Shiva is so strong that you just like become absorbed in the joy of that and leave the body. But in this case, in the Madhya Tivra, it's intense. You're permanently liberated from that point on. You don't need any guru. And typically, you don't take formal Diksha. In fact, there's a belief in the tradition that your Diksha was conducted by yoginis and dakinis. So the goddesses themselves gave you a Diksha. This is called Jnana Diksha. you just insight, spontaneous insight into the truth of your being through the grace of the goddesses that gave you a Diksha. So Lord Shiva awakens fully to himself, which I think it's cute. He needs Shakti to awaken. He wants to awaken but the diksha happens really through the mothers and they're one and the same. So Shakti awakens herself through her own dakinis and she's permanently awakened. So this person is typically a powerful guru, but they don't necessarily need to have gurus. However, in most cases, a person who receives this diksha, although it's very rare, will typically go and seek out a guru to ground their understanding. Now that guru doesn't need to initiate them because they're already fully liberated. But when they go, um, typically the guru will give them a few lectures or like teach them the structures and, you know, Ramana Maharshi. He voraciously consumed all literature on spiritual life, and he never studied Advaita Vedanta prior to his experience. But after his experience, after studying various schools of philosophy, he just felt like Advaita Vedanta. He was impressed with its elegant beauty. He just felt like that was the one to, to to speak through. But notice, he 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 attracted a lot of teachers, and those teachers helped him ground his realization. Same thing with Sri Ramakrishna. He attracted a lot of teachers, and they grounded him. So some could argue, Sri Ramakrishna, if you think of him as a human guru. He's an avatar, but think of him as a human. He had this, totally liberated, just on his own account, uh, accord, right? Um, such a powerful liberation. He was convinced of the truth forevermore, but he still needed to go and meet, you know, Totapuri and Bhairavi Brahmani just to ground, just to get some kind of, and then he was a better guru. So uh, uh, what do you call it? Ramana Ravana Maharshi, his guruhood was empowered from learning. So uh, Vivekananda, quoting Sri Ramakrishna would say, to kill yourself, you only need a, a sewing needle. But to kill others, you need a sword and a shield. In other words, to kill your ego and be liberated, you don't need a little. You don't need any knowledge. But if you want to go out and teach, if you want to liberate others, you need a lot of knowledge. You have to be very learned. So typically a person who gets a second grade Shaktipata, moderately intense, is fully liberated, but they still seek out gurus. They still learn, though they never are unsure. They're always liberated from that point on. They just, you know, ground. Okay, done. Third one, manda mantya. Weakly intense? It's still so intense, right? But it still leads to Jiban Mukta, but perhaps not all at once. Like in the second case, that person is irrevocably changed. They know they're free. They know they're Shiva. They live as Shiva forevermore. In this case, they're close. They get a glimpse, but they don't yet know. Swami Vivekananda, although he's an Ishvara Koti, meaning ever liberated, ever free, seems to have demonstrated this kind of thing where Shri Ramakrishna gave him a powerful dose um, and that dose, he, he got it through a touch. Sharmakrishna put his foot on Vivekananda's body and pushed into his chest, and he went into Nirvikalpa Samadhi then and there. He got this like Shambhavi Diksha, right? Okay, uh, in this third case, typically you need some kind of Guru. You don't, you don't just get it like that. The second case, you can. But in this case, you need a Guru. But the Guru doesn't need to do a Diksha, formal Diksha. The Diksha can come through a glance, through a few sentences said in passing. It can come through a touch, or it can even come and the tradition says you can come like this through the guru just thinking about you. So if the guru just thinks about you, be liberated. You find Sri Ramakrishna doing this often. He like thinks about people and then those people come to him. Finally. So in this case, Sri Ramakrishna touched. He gave his uh, uh, literal stamp of approval. He put his foot and branded young Nandana Swami Vivekananda by sending him into Nirbukalpa Samadhi. And Swamiji, young Naren. Re- rejected it. He objected. He said, no, no, stop, stop. I have, I have mother and father at home, I mother, I have family at home, you know, like mother and father, his father had yet died. I have brothers and sisters, help me, help me. Don't do this. And Sri laughed and laughed and laughed and said, okay, fine, come back. And then cheekily, he withheld that experience from him for a long time. He said, I tried to give it to you, didn't want it. And then, <laughs> but anyway, Narayan, after that, Became an ardent spiritual seeker, but he still had a pretty stormy few years, right? From 1978 to 1981, Brahmo Samaj, stormily trying to figure it out. Then from 1978 to 1981, Advaita Vedanta. Then from 1981 to 1984, um, you know, he becomes uh, uh, what Swami Medharandaji calls Vigyana Vedanta. In what, Bolina? You have an objection or something? Paulina was saying something, so I wanted to. She says 1881. Sorry, thank you. Was I saying 19? Thank you. What 18? Yes, thank you. From 1878 to 1881. Sorry, 1878 to 1881. Yes, he was kind of like stormily in the process. And then from 1881 to 1884, he was Advaita Vedantin. And then from 1884 to 1886, I think, or, or throughout the rest of his career, you know, this is a very interesting transition. He he, he learns a lot. You can see he's developing throughout his. So it seems like. He still has some learning to do. He's not yet sure of the ultimate truth. I mean, we know he's an Ishvara Kothi, so he's liberated from the beginning. But here, using this model, you would think that maybe he was maybe level three. He's a Jivan Mukta, right? Like liberated while embodied and wanted to be a powerful Bodhisattva in the world, compassionately teaching others. But he had to receive the touch from the Guru first. He needed Ramakrishna's awakening. Um, then from that point on, he needed further instruction and then he was free. It seemed like. Uh, but this is not what the tradition, the tradition will say he was always fit, but anyway. Okay, now level four. So one, two, and three. One is Videha Mukti, like total death, right? Total death, meaning the body goes away, but real life begins now. The next one is jivan Mukta. And if you want, you can give up your body if you want. Like you can just meditate. Third one, again, you become a jivan Mukta, but after a little practice, okay? All of these will require um Tivra, intense, but different degrees of Tivra. Now remember in the third case, you need a human guru. In the first and second, not necessarily. You can, but really in the third case, you typically need a human guru to, to do that first. But that guru doesn't have to do a formal diksha. Okay, now we come to the fourth thing. Now, this Shaktipata will and by the way, you approach a guru because of a Shaktipata. That's an interesting. Thing I said the Shaktipata comes first, and then you approach the Guru, and then typically the Guru, you know, awakens you. So it gets conflated sometimes. Shaktipata, then Guru or Shaktipata and Guru at once. Never Guru then Shaktipata because really Shaktipata comes from Shiva. Okay, anyway, I don't want to get into too many technicalities. Let's go to number four. So number four, there's no chance of Jivan Mukti anymore because in number four, you have a strong desire for Shiva, but also somewhat of an attachment to spiritual powers. So you might still want some kind of, and you won't get liberation until you get that power first. So you go to a great teacher and the teacher will help you get the power first. There's a, a beautiful letter, that Swami Turyananda writes to Niklananda. It's kind of an eerie letter. And he's saying to him, um, I know you want name and fame. You will never get God as long as you want that. So why don't you go get that first, then get God. And he got it. Niklananda Ji got name and fame. So sometimes I wonder you know, about that. Anyway, so sometimes people want something and they're high spiritual aspirants anyway, but they should get that thing first. Lord Shiva wants to taste that thing. So typically the guru helps them achieve that power. And then they're shortly after that, liberated after they leave the body. So it's still Videha Makhid. So, videha mukti, but only after that, then it might take some time. Whereas in the first case, videha mukti then and there. In this case, you have to, you know, wait a little bit, get, get what you wanted, enjoy your power, and then after you leave the body. You, okay. Grade five. Now we enter into, um, the second, second set, right? The first set is all intense. Now we enter this. No, no, sorry. We entered four already. So now five. We're, we're in the squarely in the second set now. So number four is called, um, tivra manthya. Intense, but moderate. So I, I don't want to call it intensely moderate. It's moderate and intense. Then there's Mandhya Madhya. So this is moderately moderate. So this would be, you still want to enjoy the world. You approach a guru. The guru initiates you usually using a formal diksha. By the way, the formality of the diksha increases the, the less intense your Shakti Banta is. So you have a formal diksha. You come to spiritual life. You're doing it, but you also want spiritual joys. Now, typically this guru will help you reach a high tattwa, not yet Shiva Shakti, not full liberation, but you get to a pretty high plane. And typically you go to that plane Enjoy some super sensual delights. And then from there, you're liberated. So this is called Karama Mukti. You're not liberated after that. You still have to transmigrate. You'll enjoy some pleasures in some heavenly realm, but typically you'll be liberated there. Right? Um, And now six, this is weakly moderate. So here you don't need um, any extraterrestrial gurus. I mean, now there are aliens, apparently. You don't need extra, I mean, they always were, I'm not sure. But you don't need extraterrestrial gurus. You can have your guru, your worldly guru, that guru will give you liberation through Diksha, but that liberation will only you'll only be able to cash it after you enjoy a little more. So again, you'll go to another realm, maybe it'll take a little longer. But these two are called, these three, I think, can be called Krama Mukti. Except Tivra Madhya is, is a kind of Videha Mukti. Krama Mukti means sequel liberation, sequential liberation that you get in, in other realms. Okay. Now Tivra Manda, weak but intense, this is the last one where you can profit from a human guru. Everything else will require extra help. So tivra manda, you can have a human guru, um, but you'll have to go to another realm and enjoy pleasures. And there you'll be liberated. So again, it seems like five, six, and seven. It's all a very similar story. You go to some super sensuous realm, some other tatwa, and then there in that tatwa, you know, you you practice, and then from there, you... now seven after that, eight and nine, you need a teacher from that plane. So when you go to that plane. Yeah. that there you will meet a teacher. So you're not liberated after that, nor are you even liberated in that plane. You have to be reinitiated by a Shiva yogi in that realm, by a master who lives in that realm, and then they'll take you further. There's a mention of this in Yogananda's biography, Yogananda Giri, you know? <laughs> and in Yogananda Giri, he says, Yuktishwar Giri, when he passed away, he went to be a teacher in a more exalted realm where there were students that were like more up to his, his caliber. So he just felt like his talents were wasted in the earth realm. So Yukteswar Giri apparently went on to be a master in a, in a higher realm. So all of these talks of realm, these Bhubanas, as you know, is a big part of Vedic culture, like the lunar path, the solar path, and Devayana, and Pitriayana, Brahma Loka, and Gandharva Loka, all these things, Lokas, they're accepted by Kashmir Shaivism, right? But the point is not to go to Lokas. As Swami just said, the point is not to go to heaven. The point is to stop wanting to go to heaven. So even if you go to heaven, there's still some hope there that you can meet a guru and that guru will initiate you and you will liberated. So notice, if we set up a scale from one to nine, notice it's just increasing levels of worldliness as you go from one to nine, which means increasing levels of wanting enjoyment. Right? So isn't that that sweet? Like the more you want the world, uh, typically the less intense your Shaktipata was. But that's not your fault. That's because Lord Shiva wanted to continue enjoying the world somewhat in you. So you shouldn't punish yourself or like be condescended to just because you want to enjoy the world. That's as valid a game as like wanting to be all out renunciant and doing nothing but spirituality all day long, every day. You know, they're both valid games. So whatever Shaktipata you receive, the case is not closed. Higher levels of Shaktipata can come. There are some people who say there are only two. One Shaktipata that brings you the tradition, one ring to find them, one ring to bind them all. But no, two. One to bring you and one to finish you. So, one, like, it's, it's, you have to, you have to double tap. Otherwise, you're not fully dead. So, two Shaktipatha. Some people say you just get two. One to bring you to the Guru, the second one, done. So, typically, the Guru's initiation is actually, in most cases, liberation. And the rest of your life is just working out that liberation, integrating that liberation, manifesting that liberation. Okay. So, I think we'll stop there. The nine levels of Shaktipatha. Uh, which one did you receive? No need to get into that astrological speculation and like, you know, judge each other for it um, just ask yourself, how much do you want God right now? Like if, if I asked you, are you willing to give everything up for the spiritual quest? And you say, yes, unequivocally, then you're probably level to me, right? That's not better or worse than any other levels, but if you're willing to like renounce everything here and now, if you're willing to lose all of your loved ones, all of your wealth, if you're willing to give up bodily health. If you're willing to give up any prospect whatsoever at name and fame or worldly or heavenly enjoyment, if you can do that, Probably you got a level three and that's a nice game to play. Very intense game. Uh, but if you still want a little, maybe you want some spiritual powers, you want some spiritual experience, fine. Level four and then onwards. It's perfectly fine. Now, level two, you must actually be tasting your joy from, from being liberated. So you can't just say, you know, I'm liberated and not feel that. It has to be a really lived as part of your experience. You have to know the bliss of the Atman and live accordingly. Right. So I think in closing, I will, I, I'm done. Finally, I'm done. I've said everything that I need to say about Shaktipata. Probably more will be said next week. We'll talk about Anupaya, instant liberation. And next week, I think we'll explore Anurash, Anurashthika, the, uh, sorry, Anutarashthika, the eight standards of liberation, which Abhinav Gupta claims if you hear but once, you'll be instantly liberated. It's like, it's like Orionji, you know, he shares the Kuttuzangpo. It's like that. It's like one of those powerful wisdom teachings. You just hear it and you're immediately liberated from that point on. So having discussed Shaktipata, I pray that next time we meet, that transmission will be a Shaktipata for all of us. Uh, And I pray that from now till then, in this interim, that every single moment might be a possibility of the Shaktipata, that we might be awakened to what we always were, what we always will be and what we are now. So I'm going to close by chanting a little bit from, maybe not chanting, just reciting a little bit from the Paramartha Sara a very important text by Abhinavagupta, Gupta, 105 verses on the essential teachings of the Trika. I'm not going to chant all 105. I know it's characteristic of me, but I'm just going to chant four. Four verses and their translation, and then we'll call it a day. Verses 9, 15, 18, and 33. Verse 18 will show you that there is a Marga, there is a path, there's a Shiva Marga, meaning there's a spiritual path in Trika, Sorry, there's practices. You can't just like from this. i I want you to know this part. Okay, so let's start. Paramam Yat Svatantriyam. Durgata Sampadanam Maheshasya Devi Maya Shaktihi Svatma Varanam Itat. Paramam Yat Svatantriyam. The supreme freedom of the Lord which is capable of accomplishing the most difficult task. Here the word for difficult is Durga, a reference to the goddess Durga. This is called Maya Shakti, Devi Maya Shakti. The goddess Maya Shakti serves Paramashiva as a veil to hide himself, Svatma Avarana. So again, the Supreme Lord's great freedom, which is capable of accomplishing the most difficult task, is called the Maya Shakti. Goddess Maya Shakti. She is the freedom of the Lord that plays this game of hide and seek and allows him to veil himself from himself. This is the Na in Nama Shivaya and also the Ma. Kambukambiva tandu lakkana vinevishtambina mayapya bhidha bhajate tatu Shiva marga anumukya yogena. Kambuka means the husk outside a grain of rice. So the husk existing on a grain of rice, though existing separately, appears inseparable from the grain. But the feathered fettered being, who similarly seems attached to his body and mind, attains purity by turning towards Shiva through yoga and tre- treading on his path. And now the final verse. svagyana vibhava bhāsana Lord Paramashiva liberates himself from bondage by loosening its grip through the glory of the knowledge of the self. Thus, bondage and liberation are his divine play. Aum. Thus, bondage and liberation are his divine play. Iti Shiva. All this is very Shiva. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Ar Mahadeva.